What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning. Welcome to the first ever episode of the Education Research Reading Room, also known as the ERRR Podcast. I'm Ollie Lovell and I'm really excited to be able to share with you today episode number one. Episode one was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Bunurong people, the Melbourne Graduate School of Education. And in this episode, we speak to Jan Owen, CEO of the Foundation for Young Australians, about FYA's article, The New Basics. Before we jump into this podcast, I'll just give you a quick outline of who I am, what I hope the ERRR podcast is and becomes, and how it came into being. I'm a high school maths and physics teacher, currently heading into my second year of teaching, and I'm really passionate about all things education. As a time pressure teacher, I've found podcasts an excellent format for learning for myself, because I can listen to them at the same time as doing other things. So I wanted to add another set of voices to the education podcast community, this time with a specific goal of making it easier for educators to engage with education research. At the same time, I also wanted to build the education community in Melbourne, plus just have a good excuse to chat to some really inspiring educators. The way that the ERRR podcast works is that every episode, we contact a prominent figure in the education landscape and ask them the following question. If every educator in the world could spend an hour reading your work, what would you want them to read? A group of early career educators reads this piece independently, then meets to discuss. Following an hour or so of conversation, the author then joins, and a subsequent discussion is recorded and turned into the ERRR podcast. As mentioned before, for our first episode, we had Jan Owen in the room. As a pioneer of the youth sector in Australia, Jan has dedicated most of her working life to social change and encouraging young people to give back and invest their talents in their communities and things that they're passionate about. I saw Jan speak at the Australian College of Educators National Conference in September and knew she'd make a great first guest for the podcast. In the room for this first episode, we had Michaela, Maddie, Helen, Callum, Anthony, Beth, and of course, Jan and myself. Callum is a policy advisor at FYA, and this podcast starts with Callum giving us a bit of an intro to what his paper on the new basics is all about. So without further ado, let's together jump into the ERRR. Um, yeah, Callum, we would love for you to give us some background or context on, on the article. Great. Thanks, Ollie. So the Foundation for Young Australians have released three reports so far in our New Work Order series, first of which was called New Work Order, and that was released in 2015. That had a look at the three major economic trends that are affecting work and therefore education as a result of it. Um, so those three trends are automation, chance of jobs being automated over time. So there's been lots of reports internationally that shows between 40 and 50% of jobs are at risk of automation when you look at the types of activities. So whether they're high touch or high sort of cognitive sort of thinking involved in the jobs um, or low touch or low cognitive involvement, the ones that have um, low levels of touch, so you don't have to manipulate and use dexterity in your fingers to do things, those types of activities and require not that much sort of cognitive thinking, they're at high risk of automation. You then apply that to occupation types and you spread it across the population, across the whole sort of um, employment market, and you see that there's 40% of jobs that are at risk, particularly for the Foundation for Young Australians, 70% of entry-level jobs are at high risk of automation over the next 10 to 15 years. 
Doesn't mean the jobs are all going to disappear. We're not saying they will be automated, um, but it does mean they're going to be transformed in some way. And that's particularly specific types of tasks within roles. So you'll see accountants probably won't disappear as a profession, but a lot of the jobs that accountants do in compiling data in the back end and putting together lots of information, that's going to be automated. Um, so what we're seeing is a big transformation. For young people in particular, jobs like working at a checkout at a supermarket have already, has already been automated. And a lot of those entry-level positions that get people started in the job market, they're the ones that are most at risk, or the 70% of those are at high risk. Um, so we released that report, also looked at globalization. So looking at services being provided externally, um, there's lots of examples where you can be writing, my friend writes for a Chinese, like a magazine overseas in English, he does translations for them. But there's lots of services that are provided in the Philippines or India or China, that's increasingly happening in Australia. Um, and then also collaboration or flexibility of work. So what we've found is obviously the rise of platforms such as Airbnb, Uber, Airtasker. They've lowered the cost of transaction between different types of people over services like taking a taxi or booking out a hotel room, and that transforms the way work looks. So these three things are shifting work, and that there's benefits and negatives as a result of that, and we need to prepare for it. So that was our flagship report. We had over 5 million media sort of like audience for it overall. So we had massive exposure as a result of that. We then released How Young People Are Faring, which was the second report in New Work Order series. Um, that show looked at basically uh, the education data from Australia. So we compiled PISA data, a lot, a lot of other sort of major data sets, um, but also found that there's now between full-time education and full-time employment, there's a 4.7-year gap. So where that used to be one year um, or 1.5 years in 1989, in 2015, that was 4.7 years. So there's this extension. And there's lots of reasons for that. People are traveling overseas. They're doing, you know, taking up part-time employment rather than full-time employment. They're taking casual sort of work up. They're maybe studying for longer as well. So there's lots of reasons for that, but we're seeing this increasing gap. And then finally, the new basics was the report we released in April this year. Um, and that looked at 4.3 million job ads. And we we're looking at entry-level positions. So years zero to three experience to be able to get into the job. Um, and what we found is that employees are increasingly asking for enterprise skills, otherwise known as soft skills, general capabilities, lots of terms for the same thing. Um, and what, what they're doing, they're increasingly asking for skills like communication, problem solving, critical thinking. This has increased a fair bit. But interestingly, also they will pay more for those skills. So for a job that asks for presentation skills, uh, employers will pay $9,000 more compared to a job that won't when you match those sort of jo that job data together. Or they'll pay for about $8,000 more for creativity. So there's lots of examples of these different skills and the increasing demand from the employer side. So essentially, we've looked at this, the big picture data, found that there's this transformation happening. As part of that, we're also looking at data. McCrindle, which is a, um, a research um, institute, found, like did a predictive sort of analysis of jobs data and found that there will now be 17 jobs over five industries. It's a predicted outcome for most young people today, your 15-year-old. 
So you, you can see that this massive shift is happening. Employees are demanding the skills as a shift. And then next week, we're releasing the fourth report in the series. And essentially what we're doing is trying to reimagine how we think about careers for young people. We've again looked at jobs data and we've matched together similarities in skills based off occupation type. So if there's clusters essentially of skills that group together, like similar, similar technical skills, foundational like literacy, numeracy and enterprise skills within a particular set of jobs, they've been clustered together in seven job clusters. So rather than thinking it as like the education sector, the health sector, the manufacturing sector, the construction sector, we've now got these seven clusters um, that have emerged. And so we see that as a new way of educators to think in a you know, meaningful way of how to prepare young people for careers that exist now. So do you see that more as a strength-based kind of education approach where you see in a student a certain set of skills or strengths and you say, well, I, I think that if you develop this suite of skills, you know, that would prepare you really well for a flexible workplace in the future? Yes. So if you've got these set of skills, you are not just going to be prepared to be an accountant, but interestingly, there's the same cluster, I think it's called the providers, which is an accountant and a teacher fit into the very similar role. So it's interesting how some of the overlap is. It's, so there's a different technical skill set, and that's quite a jump, an accountant and a teacher, because you've got to do a degree. But you'll find that there's connections between areas. And we're already doing this in the employment market. People are moving between different types of jobs. It's just that we've pulled together job data to show that there is these connections. And so it means that rather than saying, I'm preparing to become a lawyer, or I'm preparing to become a police officer, and for a young person who's 15, They'll be going like, often, and I've worked with a lot of young people in careers programs, they'll go like, I don't know what I want to do. Like, you ask me what I want to do for the rest of my life. I don't know. If you can say, if you develop these set of skills because you've got a particular interest in mathematics and you add in a couple of other areas, you've got these series of occupations open to you. And it's just the language as well. Like, same as what you were saying about careers being flexible and moving, you're giving advice to young people about you know, you will probably move between different jobs. That's already happening in the workplace. But you, you can find that if you've got these similar set of skills, enterprise skills and technical skills and your literacy and numeracy, which is also really important, if you match that together, you will have flex to go into these sort of areas. It makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really important because it addresses one big challenge that teachers have a lot these days, which is a thing called vertical relevance. It's essentially students these days they don't believe you if you say, do well at school, you'll get a good job. They, they know about, I mean, they probably don't know the data that you were just talking about in terms of, what was it, 4.3 years? Was it 4.3 years after finishing education? 4.7 years after... Between full-time education and full-time work within that area, mm. like that you're qualified for. Yeah, so they, they don't know the, the numbers, but I'm sure that they're getting a feel for the fact that there is this gap and they've probably got brothers, sisters, cousins, you know, that for whom that's a big gap. So to explain to them the skills and how they tie in, I think it's really going to make a lot of sense to them. It's just a different way of thinking about it. Like we all know this. People move between jobs all the time. It's already happening. There is a lot of connections between jobs. People move between different industries. That's already happening. It's just a way of grouping it together in a sort of common sense sort of way. And what we're hoping is that then we part, because what I mean, F FYA's role is not to then say, teachers, this is exactly how you do it. We go, here's the data, this is what we think it means, go off and have a look, does this work? 
and as much as possible then try to adapt with that when we're speaking to policymakers at a sort of top level. So that conversation took place in the hour before Jan turned up. And a big thanks to Callum for providing such a clear overview of the paper. Next, we jump straight into the main segment with Jan Owen. I guess one, one question I'd be interested to start off with is, you know, when you meet someone at a party and they say, what do you do? What, what is your answer? Let's get a drink. <laughs> uh, no, my answer is I just basically say I work with young people and sometimes I might say I work for the Foundation for Young Australians, which is the largest for-purpose organisation that invests and researches and backs young people and um, to create the next generation of change makers. Cool. How did you, how did you come to, to that role in that organisation? I started out my life as a youth worker. So working with young, particularly young Indigenous people on the streets of Brisbane. Um, and then I, um, over time, I was sort of a young person then myself, ended up getting involved in youth policy and then um, advocacy around children and young people in out-of-home care. And then I went to kind of the other side to look at what would it take to actually really enhance and support um, not-for-profit and organisations and build social enterprises that were looking at how to do things differently in the world. Um, and then from there I kind of came to FIA, which was really kind of bringing all of that together in one place, but back to what I describe as my kind of heartland, working with young people, but with a lot, a lot, a lot bigger toolkit than I had when I kind of started, kind of 20 years later, inevitably. Well, hopefully that would happen for everyone. Um, so, yeah, so I've had a long history in sort of social policy and um, social innovation and entrepreneurship and, um, and advocacy. So I guess we're predominantly a bunch of educators around this table at the moment. I'm, I'm really curious how education fits in with kind of the, the suite of things that FYA does. Well, I mean, education's kind of core to what we do, and but not education in and of itself. We think about education as how do you prepare young people um, and inspire them and equip them for the future, and not just for them individually, but for them and their ability to contribute to the broader society. So, um, you know, one's an individual track, and the others. Um, are we bringing the best of people and are we genuinely tapping into the best resources that we have in kind of this generation and the ones to come to improve um, everything about how we work, how we do things in our communities and in our countries? Cool. And I guess that's what kind of brought FYA to this suite of reports that you've just started doing in terms of the new work order and things like that. Uh, what, what role did you play in, in kind of selecting this direction for FYA as a focus? Well, FYA has always done research and actually always done research on education. So we, you know, for 15 years we had a report called How Young People Are Faring, which looked at young people's transitions from education and beyond into work or higher education. And also we've, you know, done a lot of reports. There's been books written at FYA. <laughs> about education. We've had, you know, real experts in education 
In fact, we in 2008 merged with a foundation called the Education Foundation because they were super interested in, again, what were the most interesting practical things that people were doing in education to, you know, focus on the future but also innovate around schools and teaching and and communities. So, you know, FYA has had a really strong and rich history of research but about 18 months ago we decided that we really needed to dial it up and that was because we started looking at the future and what was coming and what would need to be different for young people rather than just kind of what we kept dishing up in terms of kind of here's the inequalities in the system or here's the inequities in the system or, you know, let's focus on one group and let's focus on another group or let's focus on teachers, you know, teacher quality. There seemed to be a lack of real focus, attention on why, for what, for what result in the world do we want to pull all these levers? And they were just a heap of levers that were being pulled. So we got really serious about let's think about young people Let's think about what they're going to need to be for a, what we describe as a new work order. And with this underpinning view that we have to ensure that everyone's on the same kind of page around how we think about the future, economically, socially, environmentally, culturally, that all these things are now joined up. They're not separate. And different groups shouldn't take different things. So, you know, politicians shouldn't just take economic and, and you know, not-for-profits shouldn't just take social. And so that idea that, you know, if we're going to really transform social, economic, cultural, environmental systems in the world, we better start thinking about education, you know, in the future. Mm. Can you, I mean, you, you, you spoke about, that short time ago when you thought, wow, we really need to dial this up. Can you pinpoint a time or an event or something that happened for you particularly that made you think, wow, our young people are really not going to be prepared here? I think it was reading a whole heap of reports from the World Economic Forum, from the OECD, talking to friends that I have that are um, at Harvard, at, the, at Stanford, who work in management consulting firms. So, you know, I know quite a few people who work in places like McKinsey. Um, and they were all saying things like, there is the rate of change that is coming, we are unprepared for. Number two, nobody's talking about the right things. They're talking a lot, but they're not talking about the right things. Number three, um, we are unprepared. <laughs> like entire countries are unprepared, not just groups of people, but entire countries, entire industries, let alone people like young people and students are unprepared for what is coming down the pike in the world at the moment. And I went, okay. And we collectively at FYA went, we need to get focused on this. I've had the opportunity to hear you speak at our conference, which was amazing and, and the reaction from educators in the audience was amazing. And I've had a read of the report. One of the things that concerns me from a professional association perspective, and you touched on it by saying teacher quality, how are we as a profession, and I do use the term profession because 
we were having a brief discussion earlier. If you look at the the media and the political terminology around education, it's still defined as a vocation or a calling, but it is a profession. And what I'm curious is you've identified these enterprise skills that are going to be required for future generations. How do we ensure that the educators of today, they themselves have these enterprise skills? Because I would imagine you can't educate those skills unless you have them yourself. I mean, there's two things. Number one, whether it's a profession or not, well, it is a profession, sorry. I shouldn't say whether it's a profession. Of course it's a profession. My uh, challenge to the profession is what is that profession? What is that role? What is, what is going to change fundamentally in how the teaching profession, or I actually like to call them educators. I like to call you educators um, because educators crosses many boundaries and rightly so. Um, traverses many, many fields of thought and practice and uh, inputs. And I think this idea that an educator, not in the old world order, but in the new world order, is a very, very, very different person to a teacher. And I feel like we are trying to improve teachers. There's a whole story about teacher quality and teacher improvement. But again, for me, it's focused on the wrong things. So I want to see educators focused on a myriad of new roles that are everything from how will you be one of the best curators of content, of opportunities, of inputs of people, you know, in your entire, in the system? How will you be a coach a mentor, a facilitator. How and where where are we teaching teachers that set of skills? Because to the points that everyone's made, there is no single person, and particularly a teacher over the age of 40, of which there are many, many still in the system, who will ever have the digital toolkit and skills that now an under 20 will have. And in fact, if there's any going to be any kind of you know, really radical things that should happen in schools, it should be reverse teaching on things like that. You know, just the tools themselves and maybe not the curriculum. But I just think this idea that why aren't we talking, maybe we are in AC, probably actually is, but why aren't we talking about what is the different capabilities and skills that are required of a teacher um, and how are we actually educating educators about those things rather than trying to think about what's missing. So that's the our fundamental point of difference as the Australian College of Educators. And that was a decision that, that the college made many years ago, is that our point of difference is we represent all educators across all systems, across all sectors, across all subjects. So we are very much about referring to educators as, as a profession. So thank you for noting that. What concerns me in your report is absolutely let's look at reverse engineering this how how do we upskill or reskill or skill educators to be in a position to educate those enterprise skills 
Only one in 10 teachers have recently participated in professional development to help students develop generic transferable skills for future work. So now we're getting into a policy argument, aren't we? The government is going to have to inject more money into educating educators. Well, it also came back to what Maddie said about, oh, no, you said it, actually. What, what, what are we measuring and why? You know, so, again, we are obsessed about measuring scores around subject areas and just obsessed about it, you know, the ATAR and on and on and on it goes. Um, and, of course, we do need to be able to map people's progress. I'm not ever going to argue against that. You've got to map progress. Um, of a student around a particular area. But I think, again, this idea that we have, which is, you know, how would you think about that? And there's a body of, of skills that we're talking about or capabilities um, that we call enterprising skills. Um, and again, how would you see both teachers and students being able to upskill, so that's the number one, you know, challenge I'd put on the table. Why do these things have to be done separately rather than together? Um, and certainly in a lot of work that we've done at FIA with industry, um, we see that happening. We see teachers and students together going to learn about whether it's, you know, content areas of industry or whether it's about new skills and capabilities. So let's not see that these things have to all be separated. We could learn together. That would be quite radical. Um, and then, and then um, obviously, beyond that, the measurement of some of those things, which I think are actually coming down pike around, you know, for the first time we're seeing things like creativity measured. Where are we seeing creativity measured in the world? Well, Singapore. Why? Because Singapore has the most structured rote learning pro program, school education, anywhere in the world. And now they're saying that was great then, but actually for the future that will not serve us. Students who have just done rote learning will not serve us to where we need to go as a community and as a culture and as a, as a, as a country. So, you know, we're seeing, when, and I think it's fantastic that they put their hand up and said, we want to measure cre creativity, work out how to measure creativity. Um, which shows that A, it can be done, and B, you know, when you, when you have a burning platform, which they really do, like Singapore is really worried about its future workforce development because of this education, the school education system it's had. Um, you know, brilliant at STEM, not necessarily great at the application of it in, you know, a range of different contexts. You know, I think there is, what's that great saying that, um, Cal will know what this is, but um, you know, there's something about I innovation and the kind of and and being driven by necessity. You know, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. Necessity is the mother of invention. So you know, our what we what we keep saying is we can just wait for the things to come at us where we're going to have to really rapidly rethink these things, or we can be on the front foot and say we can see what's coming and we now need to reskill retrain but again I would think there must be a lot of ways that we could do it really quickly and really radically one is having students and teachers learning together the other is immersing people in other contexts so you know one of the quickest ways for a teacher to learn 
is to get into another context, whether it's in industry or whether it's somewhere else in, in another context in a community or another country. You know, again, and that's how we all learn, by the way. We all learn much faster now and as do young people and children through immersive experience. So why aren't we doing that same kind of learning? That ties in really well to, to a thought I was just having and you talked about learning together um, and I thought we, we've probably got some people in this room who've, who have been teachers or are teachers but also who espouse a lot of these skills. You know, I know Maddie and Michaela have both just stepped out of the classroom and into, you know, Math Pathway and Education Changemakers where they have to present, where they have to use critical thinking, where they have to use all these skills. So I'm actually curious to hear from you two about where for you some of these skills came from and, yeah, how was that journey for you? Excellent question, Ollie. (laughs) I wish I could put my finger on it, but I think the development of these skills you know, it goes back to what you were saying, Jan, about immersive experiences and being in different contexts. You know, I highly value the school experience that I had and I'm very, very grateful to my teachers who I think did a wonderful job. But I also know that there are other situations that I was fortunate enough to be a part of as I was growing up that helped me to get perspective, to work with different people of different ages and backgrounds um, and develop a lot of these skills that are now classed as enterprise skills. Um, And, you know, I think because of this variety of experiences that I had growing up, I was able to then go into new situations and be able to draw on them, even if that new situation was totally foreign to me. Where exactly, what, can you give us some examples of those different contexts? Yeah, sure. So there are probably two that I draw on in particular. One was scouts. So I did scouts from a really young age. Um, I went right through the system and I was constantly doing a range of really tough and challenging things, sometimes physically, sometimes mentally, you know, working with people um, and leading groups from a very young age, learning um, all sorts of different problem-solving skills and planning events and, you know, you, you name it, you had that sort of opportunity going through the scouting system, which I would highly recommend to any young person today. The other one was music. So I was, we had a fantastic music program at my school. And again, I, I always think that if every school had a music program, whether it's classical music or whatever other sort, there is so much that students would gain from that experience where you have to work collaboratively and together you create something amazing. And problem solving, critical thinking, reflection, all of those things, again, tie into what is involved in being part of a music program. For me, I think school was a little bit different. I was a really um, incredibly hard worker. I feel like I had my head in my books or sort of 99% of the time that I was at school and then did the same thing when I got to uni. And it wasn't really until I started studying teaching um, at uni after a couple of, um, you know, I started off with medicine and then I did a Bachelor of Science and I finally bumped my way into, um, into education. And um, all of a sudden what I... What slouch you are, that is. <laughs> Medicine, science, oh, education. (laughs) It's the one thing I haven't done yet. I love that. (laughs) But I I worked out in that degree what learning felt like. And I can't believe it took me that long. I thought I was a classic learner or, you know, brilliant learner. But it wasn't until I sort of had these experiences of critical thinking and being able to pull apart a system and try and problem solve and put it back together again and, and work out 
yeah, workout solutions. I think what we do at Education Changemakers is we use skills of entrepreneurship and design thinking to help teachers to find those solutions and, and pull these ideas back together again. And um, I think if we could give students more opportunities to be entrepreneurial, um, we give them more opportunities to experience these enterprising skills. Um, we were at an event last night um, where um, FYA have partnered with NAB and they're supporting young people, giving them an opportunity to um, build their own business. And the look on those young people's faces as they stood up to receive their awards and the pride that they had in the process that they'd been through to um, come up with a problem that they had found in the world and work out solutions to solve that problem um, was, you know, it, it just it showed the power of of entrepreneurship um, um, as, as part of that learning journey. And I think if more kids could be given that opportunity, we'd um, yeah, be moving towards this, this future um, that we sort of anticipate coming. Yeah. Cool. So were you indicating that you feel like you gained these skills through your teacher education? Um, I think... Uh, yeah, I did. Yeah, I think I did. Right. Which which teacher education was that? Uh, I happened to study Ollie at the um, at University of Melbourne. Yeah, I did a master of teaching. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. That's that's good news for or good news all around. <laughs> Great. Yeah. I mean, I I could say I could say similar things. Like, I I was a bit of a bookworm at at school as well. But I really feel like I got a lot of skills, you know, facilitation skills, uh, organizing skills, things like that through youth organizations like the Oak Tree Foundation, Green, you know, Australian Student Environment Network. And it was only by engaging with these kind of things that you learn how to, you know, start recording things, that you learn how to organize a conference, that you learn how to, learn how to do these things. And that's all stuff that you can bring into the classroom. Um, so, yeah, it's a immersive experience, I guess. And I think that, um, so here's the, here's the tricky bit that must be easy to solve. She said, looking pointedly at ACE, help us. Um, you know, the idea that every single thing that you're going to need for your life is actually going to be found in school is clearly wrong and that expectation is wrong. You know, one of the visions that I've always had about education is why have we not been able to adequately um, measure and create a portfolio of all those things that you're doing in and out of school and chuck away the kind of report card and present the portfolio. And I don't mean just the artist portfolio because that's a portfolio that's very well known, but I mean the portfolio of enterprising skills where you're clearly able to demonstrate and somebody else can vouch for your demonstration of these skills, whether it's problem solving or teamwork. And even that's not enough, by the way, because what we want to see, and this is what $20 Boss does, which I think is profoundly important, is we want people to grow their capabilities year on year on year. So these aren't one-offs. This is where you want to, again, measure progress over time. And we always talk about $20 Boss is kind of building your entrepreneurial muscle, you know, and bu building your capabilities around um, problem solving and teamwork, but also your risk tolerance and your ability to fail and so therefore building your resilience which you know if there was if there was anything that's going to be required in the future from what everything that we can see in the new world order not just the new work order it's absolutely going to be um, resilience it's absolutely going to be um, adapt adaptive adaptability and it's absolutely going to be this this way of being able to think differently about things. So 
um, you know, just being able to demonstrate those things and to articulate that what you did. And by the way, we don't want to take away from the fact that Scouts is just awesome in and of itself or, you know, so is Oak Tree. We don't really want to turn those great extracurricular music lessons into now they've got to be the stamp of kind of your success as a young person because if, for instance, you don't have access to that because of where you live or your family situation, you know, that's really challenging. But I think it's just understanding how how those things need to be either translated into the school environment and set of opportunities for young people that don't have access to them outside of school, but also this idea that embedded in those are all the things that we're talking about. And if we could just illuminate them and amplify them and articulate them, then we would be have a much better measure about where a child and a young person is at and what they still need to garner or or experience or be immersed in to be prepared. And I do think, by the way, it starts in year one. Um, I mean, everyone's talking about preschool, but I leave that for the moment. But, you know, I do think it begins at the beginning around, you know, and interestingly, I think primary school is so, you know, I think I actually think our primary school system is probably one of the best in the world. I mean, I genuinely do. And then it kind of fades away somehow, which, you know, because it gets harder and more complex and more complicated. But, you know, if we could embed so much of this stuff there, um, we would set up a platform and we'd set up a pathway that was, I think, different. I guess this begs the question then, from a very grassroots perspective as someone who's teaching grade ones in a school and having read the report, what do you think tomorrow I can do going into the classroom to change things, to change these children's lives, um, to start embedding some of these skills into them if they don't already have them as one of their inherent strengths from wherever they've got them from? Um, What can I do and what can other teachers do? I'm sure you're doing it. I mean, but I'll give you some examples. I mean, I heard from a teacher out at Macquarie Fields, which is Western Sydney, where they were, you know, some people went to visit this school and it was a year one, actually, and they went into this classroom which looked nothing like a classroom. It was just a room. Um, Around the room there was some very, very clear kind of instructions around some particular work that was being undertaken um, and then the people said, well, where are the students? Because, you know, it was 9.30 on, you know, Wednesday morning. And the the teachers said, oh, well, they're actually, and these are five-year-olds or six, whatever year one is, they're actually all around the school and you can see them in pods doing pieces of work. And they, these were kind of asset people who were involved in an assessment, so they're from the Sydney Uni. And they said, wow, that's pretty interesting. So what, they're kind of unstructured, no, nobody's babysitting them or walking around after them or telling them what to do and also they're not kind of going crazy anywhere. That's interesting. And then within, you know, 20 minutes they all had to come back and they all started presenting their work against the kind of program of activity that had been done. And in that time, in that 30-minute blocks, they had created videos uh, interviewed people around things, done research and put together packages. Now, this is in Macquarie Fields, Western Sydney, deep in Western Sydney with Year One. I guess it takes a really creative approach with the curriculum for starters and also interpreting the curriculum and having a really good understanding of the curriculum alongside having a really good understanding of these skills as well. Yeah. 
But I, but I reckon, you know, if, I, if I'd been sitting there with the flip chart, which I wouldn't have done, but if I had been going, uh, you know, how the enterprising skills going, they were absolutely embedded. They were absolutely front and centre in that classroom. But also the teacher had rewired themselves around what their role was. And that was what the assessors saw as a most fundamental difference was how the teachers were engaging with the students and therefore they were eliciting all these other skills and capabilities. So, of course, like let's pull up from that. So that's obviously a school context in which that is being encouraged, supported, um, led, uh, and then, and, you know, and, therefore, and also they were already getting these fantastic results around behaviour of students around, you know, uh, learning outcomes and, and on and on it goes. Now, you know, I know and ACE knows as well, there are brilliant examples across Australia of schools like that. There are points of light all over this country. In fact, there's programs that Social Ventures run called Bright Spots. I mean, they're literally, there are points of light on schools all over the country. So that's not the issue. It's not actually the issue that we can't do this. We can and we are. So what's the issue? What's the core issue? What is actually, what is this, where are the barriers and where are the systemic and also mindset and attitudinal barriers that are not, and also where is the showcasing of these examples that because, you know, we're, we're fundamentally followers there are very, very, very few people who go right out at the pointy end as the visionaries. We are fundamentally followers. So we like to see things that have been done somewhere else that somebody else has done the hard yards and proven it and it's working and then we dive in. Well, I think one of the big big issues that we've got this VCE system and you kind of mentioned that before where, you know, it's a lot about rote learning and, you know, you're following a study design and a lot of memorizing information and you're really a long way from these enterprise skills and maybe a lot of the work that's being done in the primary schools because I, I hear this that you know primary schools you know they're doing a lot of interesting things and even in my own school which is a primary and a secondary you see a lot more um, kind of students designing their own projects and that sort of learning whereas in the high school it becomes a lot more regimented and everything's divided into subjects. Um, so, yeah, I'm interested in how you shift that. And one of the things that I found last year when I was doing that trip to the US, um, they have this thing called Big Picture Education. It's an organization. Um, some of you are probably aware of it. Is anybody not aware of it? Yeah. So I've, I've seen this in Australia and I just think that model seems to work really well. And it's just starting up here, but um, just to give like a summary of what it is it's the idea that in high school and so it's the last four years of school in the US um, rather than just doing all the subjects students will spend two days a week in a workplace and they're doing these term-long internship and they'll have their school teacher who's working as like their advisor and their mentor from their workplace and they're kind of working together to devise a project for them and at the end of their term they'll present this to community members, to their parents, to other students. And it just seems like such an exceptional 
system. It seems to work really well. The students that I saw at those schools were really engaged and students who'd come from really disadvantaged backgrounds getting these experiences they would have never had otherwise because the school is connected to all these different workplaces. And it seems like such a great system to me. And I was really surprised when I found out that it was already in Australia and there's a bit of work being done there. But it seems like in Australia, it's seen as more of like um, a lot of the alternative schools we have in high school, which are kind of these last resort schools, kids who can't, you know, for whatever reason, cope with the the pressures of the mainstream system and they are kind of put into these settings and it's just such a shame because you know by that point it's often they've had awful experiences of school and there's a lot of things holding them back and we're not really seeing the potential of this as a model so yeah I guess I was just you know if you've had any experience with that or you've spoken to um, people from the government about what they think about that system because maybe one of the barriers is just that like like wealthy families or children from wealthy families do so well at VCE and it seems like that's maybe one of the big reasons why, this is just my theory, but of why they just want to keep it going because it's a really good way of showing that they're better than other people and I can't really see why else you wouldn't try and shift things in that way because it seems like it makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I mean, there's a... You know, this is why I think this is such an important conversation to have now, here now and generally, <laughs> for two reasons. And this is why there is a genuine burning platform and why, back to Ollie's point, we've done the research that we've done. Because if our research um, holds, and remember, I mean, our research is research is aggregated from research all over the world, so we didn't kind of sit in a room and come up with it, sort of make it up. Um, we drew on the best that we could find. Um, and if our research holds and it, and it and everything is kind of coming to pass, as as we have spoken about and others have spoken about, nobody is protected in the new work order. Until now, in our 20th century industrial system and education system, if you went to a really top school, you did get extra resources, you got extra teachers, you got extra, extra, extra. But actually, genuinely, in the new work order, where a lot of the jobs that you automatically went to from that top school, whether it was a lawyer or an accountant or a very senior profession, all of those jobs are at risk right now. All of those jobs, 40% of jobs, and this is minimum, are going to be affected by automation in the next five years. 65% of what people are studying for at university is going to be smashed by automation. Those jobs are going to be smashed by automation in the next five years. So all bets are off. And this is what, you know, we can talk politics for a minute. This is what's happened in the US because actually now, now the crunch is affecting everyone including middle-class families who worked very hard to get their kids into schools and to get opportunities, for what? For what is the big question. Um, and so in a very strange way, the entire, and by the way, there are still inequities within the system. Don't get me wrong. I mean, all our research says that young Indigenous people, particularly non-urban young Indigenous people, are in, you know, they're going to face 
many more barriers because they are not getting access to even the things that kind of in the urban environment people are getting access to. So don't get me wrong, there's still inequities built into the funding model and, you know, lots of people are talking about that. But fundamentally, the burning platform that's being created by what's going to happen to the world of work changes all these conversations because it doesn't matter whether you go to Melbourne Grammar or whether you go to Knox or Scotch in Sydney or Brisbane Grammar or St Peter's in Adelaide or whether you go to Macquarie Fields High or Canterbury High or Frankston High, every person who walks out of year 12 this year, all 230,000 of them are going to walk into the next five years of the most serious disruption around what they thought their pathway was for work. Number one, one job for life, done, forget it. Number two, kind of linear pathways, I go from here to here to here, done, forget it. Number three, I'm going to have a job for a certain amount of time, done, forget it. Wages, wages are going backwards in the world and that is actually one of the key issues that brought the it's not a revolution or an evolution, but brought the US issue to a head was that wages are actually going backwards. Devolution. <laughs> so, you know, there are so many indicators about what is changing that are going to affect every student and every student, every young person, every parent, every teacher should be deeply engaged in this conversation and in thinking about what we must do different. And that's why what you have said is so right because that system that we may have created for some young people who are on the margins, you know, suddenly you're going to find a whole lot of people on the margins um, because they're not going to get the jobs, there's not going to be jobs and there's not going to be the opportunities for, you know, these smooth, just see into the future pathways. Um, and that means everyone needs a different capability and skill set, you know, everyone. And I don't care which school you go to, you're going to need enterprising skills. You're going to need to be entrepreneurial. You are going to need to be able to work how to be collaborative and a critical thinker and a problem solver and, and think about innovation and be creative And because that is the main toolkit that you're going to take into a very, very, very disrupted environment. And interestingly, educators are being disrupted. I think they are. And I think there's going to be a lot of disruption. But remember this, and this is a great plug for educators. There are 2.8 billion under 26-year-olds on the planet, the largest number ever in the history of time. And so educators aren't going anywhere. What you do is going to change radically. How successful that you are at it is going to be a huge question mark. How much resources you're going to have to actually put into it is going to be up for grabs, what the systems and how education is going to organise. I mean, I want us to first of all break the silos front and centre. I want to not talk about early childhood, primary, high school and tertiary. I want all those barriers to actually start collapsing and let's talk about a life of learning. What does it look like if you had a life of learning, not lifelong learning, not something that's got a bit of paper attached to it, but actually a whole life of learning, what would we design? If all the barriers were pulled down, what would we design? 
Um, and if anybody should be thinking about that, it's early stage teachers like you guys that are at the front end because you are going to be asked to actually craft this or you're going to be delivered something that you are not going to like. So I would step into it like fully, two feet, two hands, whatever you've got to step into it and start having a say about what it is that you see on the ground, in your school, in your classroom, in your communities, with parents, with students, and how you would start redesigning and how you would think about your community and not your school, how you would start literally busting down the walls between all those systems and start really doing innovative work across, you know, why are the primary schoolers not in the high school and vice versa? Why aren't the early childhood programs in high school and in higher ed? You know, what what's going, there's nothing stopping that except our way of thinking about how these things are built. Why aren't young people in industry two days a week, you know, for instance? On and on it goes. What you're describing is such enormous change and a very scary prospect. And there are many educators out there, but like it's already been mentioned this evening, who you know, are open with the idea of change and recognise that a lot of this change is happening around them already. Um, and I guess in addition to the hugely important role that educators play in being adaptable, there's another group of people in this system who are accountable to even more people and have great, sometimes greater responsibility. And they're the principals that are managing the um, schools and working with teachers every day to support them, but also talking with parents who come in concerned about what future their child has and so forth. Um, and understandably, principals have a pressure that they feel towards getting particular outcomes for their students, whether it's reaching those ATAR or those NAPLAN targets. Um, and, you know, making their school seem attractive to new parents who are deciding where to send their student. So I'm wondering what message would you give principals who are trying to grapple with, you know, the immediacy of hitting the current markers that they feel they need to meet, but also preparing and changing their school for the needs of the future? I spent a lot of time with principals <laughs> and teachers. I've spent more time with educators than any time in my whole life, including when I was at school, which I didn't attend very often. <laughs> so I spent more time recently than I ever did <laughs> when I was in the system. You know, I always say education failed me. I didn't fail education. But that's another <laughs> podcast. Um, you know, so I spent a lot of time talking to principals. And again, I am the last person to lecture a principal about what they should be doing or a teacher. But what I do know, and it, it comes back to what we were saying before, is that there are principals who are actually navigating this and who are doing spectacularly well and who are going out above and beyond the horizon to think about, you know, and taking risks, actually. The things that we keep saying are enterprising skills, you know, risk-taking and resilience. So, um, so to then, for me then, it says, well, what were the conditions of success for those principals? And the two conditions that I've seen and that I've seen most often documented are one, um, the turnaround principle. So the school was so bad, it was about to be shut down and nobody cared. Like, just go and do your best or worst, you know, it's, it's almost over. And so that is a huge uh, 
blank sheet of paper for that principal because we were going to shut the school down anyway. So do your worst or do your best. And I've seen principals go into that context and do incredible turnarounds because they've had a blank sheet of paper pretty much to do your best or worst. Um, That's one model. The other model is watching principals who are very, very, very uh, highly skilled and highly qualified, but highly connected to the external environment. So they see themselves as not the principal of the school. They actually put in place a whole lot of systems and processes to run the school in terms of school leadership, and they see their role as almost kind of the CEO of the school. And they're spending 75% of their time out in the environment, whether it's with parents, which is a, who are very key stakeholders, or whether it's in their community or whether it's in other contexts. And what they're doing, they're learning, they're, they're, they're building relationships, um, they're forging new, new partnerships, they're, they're thinking about how they can ensure that their students are getting the best opportunities, the best access, um, and, and the best education, and I mean education in the broadest sense of the word. And so those two kinds of principles, and of course there's a lot, you know, I'm making the statement to, to show the kind of distinctions, but those two kind of principles, and there's a lot of them in Australia, um, are doing super well. When we go, when you get down to them, you know, over a, over a red, um, I don't mean a red bull, I mean a red wine, or both are probably effective. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, they, they have got serious internal challenges as well because we do have actually a, what I would probably, a, a good guess would be probably a three-generation teaching workforce now. So there are teachers now that would be 65, still in school and even heading towards 70 because Joe Hockey said everyone had to stay at work. Um, and, um, and you've got early entrance, Right. And remember in the early entrance, there's a 30% attrition in the first three years. So early entrants are, are voting with their feet really fast, which is a serious issue and should tell us more than anything actually about how education's going in Australia, that early stage teachers are not staying. A third of them are not staying. In fact, I think it's more in some places. So, um, so their principals are working with intergenerational workforces when we've only just started the conversations about intergenerational workforces, um, and then they've got teachers, then they've got parents, then they've got students, and on and on and it goes. It is without doubt one of the toughest jobs in the world is being a principal. Um, and I think every single principal, instead of a school board, I think all that should be scrapped and they should be in um, principal groups where they're doing kind of further education and learning. They should all have a personal, like a very, and I mean a very good coach, like a really, really good personal coach. They should all be being assessed on a whole lot of those measures that are around not the ATAR, but actually around how am I building the pathways and the opportunities and the connections for my students and for the families and how am I, how am I thinking differently about education in its broader sense in my community in which I live and in which our young people live and thrive and must survive. That's the new position description for the principal. Now, some principals really get that and they're going super hard at it and some do not get it because they're tired or they've got really tough contexts and environments or they're just over it 
or, you know, on and on the list could go. By the way, that's the same in every organisation, every context, in every profession. I think for me, in summing up everything that's been discussed here, there's two things happening here. A revolution is coming in terms of the workforce and the way careers and people work. Next five years, as you said, is going to be a radical change. We also need a revolution in the education space. And that revolution has to come not only in what is taught, but how it is taught. And I think if somehow we can get those two revolutions working together, we'll actually get the outcomes that you've mentioned during the meeting. Yeah, and I think this idea that, um, again, you know, I, I always want us to see things in a bigger context. It's not that you're going to be there every day, you know, physically or in your day-to-day -day work, but to, to understand and to have a connective and integrated view about the world. So one of the worst things that an industry can do or a profession can do is kind of just create a whole heap of industry supports and mechanisms around itself, actually, <laughs> you know, because... Exactly. So, you know, one of the one of the things that, and this is where I think that educators, um, and you know, I talk to TAFE directors a lot as well. I mean, I think, I think TAFE has the greatest single opportunity of any time in its entire history to completely reinvent itself and become the most relevant, and I think actually, kind of enterprise focused um, entity and kind of institute in the country. But I say that because it's by way of example that if every profession and every industry had a view and an eye to what is the macro and mega story here. So the macro and mega story here is that Australia is a tiny place <laughs> with 24 million people in the fastest growing and newest centre of the globe at the moment in the 21st century. We don't talk about that very much. We still treat Asia as a place that we go to on holidays, you know, get on a plane and we're in Bali. We don't talk about the fact that there are 750 million 12 to 26-year-olds three hours north of Darwin that are now educated, hungry for opportunity and ambitious. And why wouldn't they be? In China alone, hundreds of millions of families have been lifted out of poverty and education has been the lever and the tool. So, you know, we are in an environment. So, you know, even if you didn't believe the new work order, even if you said, listen, those things are prospective, <laughs> you know, they may or may not happen, you know, depending who you talk to, even if you didn't believe that, just our pure socio-economic environment has now changed dramatically forever um, and we're not talking about that. So again, it, I would bring education back to every single cornerstone of how do you and how has any, any nation state, and I think Singapore again is actually a brilliant example because 50 years ago they said we have nothing, we have nothing that we can dig out of the ground and flog to other people, which we did expertly here. Um, we have only our people. That's all we've got. And so we better turn our people into the in most incredible knowledge 
entities so that we create ourselves as a knowledge nation and we better do that fast and let's invest every single thing that we have into it and they did for 50 years and they are where they are now because of that. So that is we do not tie our conversations or our thinking about how is education, our third largest export by the way still, how is education not as an expert export but as a cornerstone, as an anchor of the absolute anchor piece of the future of a country's, its ability to innovate, its ability to educate itself, its ability to create work, its ability to be entrepreneurial. How is education front and centre to everything that needs to happen in this country in the next 10 or 20 years for a generation and generations beyond? And, you know, if principals and if even teachers, educators, talked about those things, it would elevate them out of the trenches 24-7, which is not a bad thing to actually be elevated out of the trenches every now and then. It would enable people to see linkages in ways they hadn't thought about. But also, also more importantly than anything else, it would ensure that every single educator in this country really understood how central they were to the future success and well-being of this of Australia. Because genuinely there is nobody else more important to the success and well-being of Australia right now than educators. 21st century, sharp, focused, smart, educated educators. That's it. There is nothing else left for us to flog out of the ground pretty much. And where there is, we're kind of really having a big argument about that. We are not going to suddenly feed all of Asia out of the Mornington Peninsula, even though we would like to. Um, there are so many, we are not suddenly going to become the biotech centre of the universe. We may be great at certain parts of it. And by the way, we're pretty innovative. We give our innovation away. But, you know, genuinely, we could become the Finland of the region. We really could. And that is such an opportunity. Um, but it is going to require a lift of mindset, the things that we tell students. It's going to take a change of mindset. It's going to take a privileging of these conversations in all forums, and that's why I love what ACE do, all the forums and all the opportunities to lift people into different conversations. And then it's going to take the translation of that into what happens in the day-to-day. But, you know, we all know this. You know, we get inspired to do things because we have a goal or an outcome or a change that we want to see in the world. We don't get inspired to do things just because we're doing them day in, day out. We don't even get inspired just because we could just become a little bit better and tweak around the edges. That's not why educators are educators. Educators are educators because they see incredible results in their students but also what's the point of seeing an incredible result of a student in a classroom if you have not thought about what that means for when that student walks out of that gate, whenever that is, into the future and into the new world order of which work and the economy and social change is, is happening all around us. What is the point? What's the point of just saying I did great with that one student if they are not prepared and equipped? And not only that, by the way, inspired. 
because there's a heap of great opportunities if people are equipped and inspired. Thanks so much, Shan. I'm feeling after this conversation maybe a little bit more equipped and inspired to go back to, to the classroom and try to confer some of these enterprise skills to my students at least. The question that we asked you when we brought you on today was if every educator in the world could spend an hour reading some of your work or that of FYA, what would they read? What should they read? I was, I was wondering um, in terms of us looking forward to future ERRR episodes, if there was any one or any other organisations that you would suggest we look at that you yourself found really inspiring and edifying um, that we should potentially check out. Well, I mean, there's lots of, I, I, would, I would do an entire kind of series on the innovations that are taking place. And, you know, this is challenging because there's a lot of innovation now. And so we're thinking very hard, some of us in the space, about how, to, how do we best curate that to understand it better because you don't want just a whole lot of random innovation that kind of flames out. So, but I do think that the innovation that's taking place in, in teaching methods, but the innovation that's taking place in terms of, again, re, rethinking the teacher role and, re, and upskilling and retraining teachers, and we've got two people in the room today that are both of their organisations differently involved in different forms of that kind of work. Um, I think the, I think getting people like, and we spend a lot of time at FIA with economists, which sort of sounds a bit dry, but actually we only work with economists now to write our reports, so, you know, social economists. Getting those sort of people, getting the unlikely people, as I said, in the big macro picture, who are the most unlikely people that you could talk about about education and bring them to the table? So, you know, innovations and how those are being played out and, in, and, and, in, and informing what's going on and then the most unlikely. Go and find the most unlikely people because you will find that they all have a view about education, education and educators, um, some of which will be ill-informed <laughs> and um, because everyone went to school, so that's the worst thing that happens to teachers, um, but some that will be highly, hi highly informed and very well thought through. Fantastic. So that's a bit of a, a call to action to, to ERRR. I was wondering if you had any calls to action for potentially listen people listening uh, or teachers or anything you'd, you'd love for people to, after they finish listening today, go away and, and get stuck into or to do. Well, you know, in the end, we have to, it, everything has to be fairly pragmatic. <laughs> so there are two things that I always think. I think, um, thank God for podcasts, by the way, <laughs> because you can learn a whole lot more so much faster now. And again, um, you know, the best teachers I genuinely believe have got other interests and other things that they bring to the table. So, you know, the teachers that are listening to uh, things that are going on in other industries and learning about them. And it might not be, I mean, now it's not as, you know, it's not such a big deal to say have been engaged in robotics because actually that's coming into the classroom. But, you know, there is the next level. What are the most, look across disciplines is what I would say. I'm a huge, huge believer in the fact that cross-discipline approaches are going to solve the problems that we, so go find out what um, engineers are doing. Go find out what architects are go doing. Go find out what's happening at the bleeding edge of health simulation and learning. Go find another discipline and learn about it and find out about it. You don't have to go and get a degree. Please don't. You don't want another $60,000 debt. 
but, you know, go learn, listen to podcasts, so fuel yourself. And then find your people. You know, find your people. I mean, there are how many thousand teachers are there? There's six and a half thousand schools. There's there's a lot of teachers. So find your people and start joining up. You know, we're we're joining up with Education Changemakers next year for and also we're involved in EduTech next year, but we're joining up with Education Changemakers on their big kind of big conference, which I think is going to be a bit mind-blowing if they have anything to do with it. And we will bring a disparate group of people who would never normally come together, but also lots of educators who need to come together and spend time together. And that will be an incredible melting pot of ideas and exchange. And so find your people inside the, inside the profession, but also go and get educated and find your people outside of profession. Now, I know that's a really big ask because you've also got to turn up to school at eight o'clock tomorrow morning and you've got to do those marking and you've got everything else that's going on. But you have to make time to nurture, to nurture, I mean, and I mean genuinely nurture yourself and your soul and your mind in this. And you can't expect to get it, just like, by the way, parents shouldn't expect that everything happens from the school. Teachers shouldn't expect that everything they're going to get either is going to come from great students or from the school. As a, as a career changer and also as, as an early career teacher, the teaching profession attracts perfectionists. And so a lot of people who are early career teachers, they strive for perfection way too quickly. And the biggest kind of uh, mantra that I go into my new profession is to be patient. You have to be patient with yourself. You have to be patient with the children that you're teaching. And you need to just take the time to transition from being a beginner to an expert because it doesn't happen overnight. Yeah, I could keep going on about my mantras and my thoughts on this, but I'll, I'll stop because we all know we need so to. So that's the, that's the last thing I want to say is that I think, I think we're going to see a lot of career changes and I think that's a brilliant thing for the profession because until now it's been kind of institutionalised. So you went to school, you went to uni, you went back to school. So the more career changes, you know, this is why I'm a huge supporter of Teach for Australia. I genuinely think the more disciplines, the more career changes, it shows a maturity of a profession if it can embrace difference. And a profession that can't embrace new ideas and difference and people from different backgrounds is not actually a very mature profession. And education, as I said, for all the reasons I said before, needs to be at the bleeding edge of that. I'm sure many, many listeners have their appetites wet by this conversation. And if people want to get a little bit more into the work of FYA or, or something like that, where can they find FYA? Where can they find Jan Owen? www.fya.org.au. Um, and if you head to our research section, what we do, under the title, what we do, in the research section, you'll see there's a section on our new book order research series. So you'll be able to read all the reports that talk about the future of work and how that impacts education. Also, check out FYA next week. So that's Thursday, the 24th of November. We'll be releasing our new report in the series. So watch out for that. Right, which will definitely be out by the time this podcast goes out. So people can jump straight online and have a look at that. Awesome. Um, great. Thanks so much for coming in, Jen. So that was the first ever episode of the ERRR podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. If you did enjoy it, please write a review on iTunes. 
The more great reviews we have, the more easily people will be able to find the show. Coming up in episode two, we talk to Professor Stephen Dinham about his paper, The Worst of Both Worlds. This paper details Australia's propensity to adopt education fads from other countries and discusses the impact that it has on our education system here. And finally, I'd like to finish with a few thank yous. Big thank you to the Australian College of Educators for partnering with me to bring this event together. Thanks to Cameron Melcher from the Teachers Education Review, a fantastic fortnightly podcast that helps to bridge the gap between education research, policy and practice in Australia, but also around the world. Cameron helped me with a whole heap of advice that helped streamline this process of getting this very first podcast on air. Big thank you to Tim Topham for his support and advice on podcasting as well. And also a massive thank you to Holly Isles for her support in the technical area and more broadly. This is Ollie Lovell. It's been an absolute pleasure bringing together this first podcast. Hope to see you next time. And until then, keep learning.